0: What is the essence of true faith? I'll ask that question again. What is the essence of true faith? I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter one. We're going to be in verses ten through sixteen this morning, continuing our series in Titus. The title of our sermon is "Is Doctrine and Duty?" Doctrine and Duty. I happen to be perusing the website mormon.org the other day. I don't do this often, just so you know. I don't get any of my sermon uh, materials from mormon.org, but because we're doing our uh, equipping class on cults and world religions on Sunday nights starting soon, and then I've also taken a class recently called uh, Cult Theology, and I've had the opportunity to just kind of be immersed in this recently and taken some interest in just and looking at it, and so I happened to be looking at, at some of the videos, and uh, I listened to one video of testimony of, uh, of Mormons sharing why they, why they chose the Mormon faith, and, and a couple of the testimonies were just interesting and somewhat bothersome to me. Uh, one person said when he asked Heavenly Father if this was true, the revelation of Joseph Smith, the, entire, the things of Mormonism, he knew that it was true. He said he had a peace that he had never felt before. He knew that it was true. And then the next person, the screen switched, and the next person said, bottom line, I I can't deny how I feel about this, that that it's true. And then the next person, the guy said, this is truth. There's nothing else that I can say. This is truth. This is bothersome because if I asked you how you know Christianity is true, your faith, your relationship with Christ is real and is true, I'm fearful that a lot of people would say, I know it's true because it's happened to me. I know it's true because I feel it. It's real all down inside of me. As we said at the Christmas sermon a while back, I emphasized the historical nature of Jesus' birth. And I was sharing with you, people feel all sorts of things, and we call them crazy sometimes. That's Feeling is not enough. What is the essence of true faith? This is what we need to look at this morning. I want to get the children to help me out for, for just a moment. Kids, can, where are you? Can you raise your hands for me? Can you raise your hands? All right, I, I see you guys. All right, I want you to help me out for a minute, okay? I'm trying to remember my, the uh, alphabet, okay? So help me out. Will you say it with me? A, B, C, D. Come on. E, e, F, G. Did I say it wrong? Sorry. No? Was that okay? All right. So A, B, C, D. All right, we're good. We're, get, we're getting there. Now, if, guys, if I wanted to change that and I wanted to say B, G, F, D, H, I, J, is that okay? Can I do that? Why not? I can't change it? That's not okay. What if I wanted to, like, add some letters? I just feel, man, I've got some ideas, and I wanted to add some letters that I have in mind, you know? Is that okay? Could I do that? I couldn't do that. Why? You just It's there, right? The alphabet. You've been taught. It's true. This is the alphabet. What about, like, 2 plus 2? If I wanted to say 2 plus 2 equals 5, right? That, that wouldn't be okay? I couldn't do that? No, I couldn't do that, could I? Friends, it's the same with faith. It's the same with religion. It's the same with the gospel. It can't be changed. It can't be altered. It's not up to feeling. It's not up to what you feel inside of you. There is a a movement that's been going for some time. We've applied the, the song, All You Need Is Love, to religion as well. As I heard one person say recently, a teacher, a professor... He would say, we all need love, but love is not all we need. Friends, we need truth. We need truth. What is the essence of true faith? Will you stand with me? And we're going to read Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Beginning in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, Especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated. Father, I pray that your spirit would open your word to us that we may hear and that we may obey. God, give us grace this morning to receive your word, to obey it faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The main thought as we look at the passage this morning is the good news of Jesus is rooted in reality. Rooted in reality, never to be changed. Rather, it should be taught, this is important, taught, defended, and lived. In one sense, when we begin this passage in verse 10, by Paul saying, for there are many who are insubordinate, Paul is answering the question of why do we need overseers? Last week we studied what are the qualifications of overseers, and in one sense Paul is answering why we need them, and the reason is because there are many who are insubordinate as we hit the passage, immediately Paul is going to say, it's not just a few who are false teachers, but there are a lot of them. And so friends, don't be surprised, don't be discouraged, if even in our day, there are many false teachers. There are many who teach things differently than what you hear, and the truth that's been passed down to you. Friends, there were many then, and there are many now, and there will be many until Christ returns. And so there are many who are insubordinate, and so... Overseers, their main role is going to be to protect the body, to clarify truth. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble this morning. To clarify truth. As we look at this passage, I said this a couple of weeks ago when we started Titus. Paul, when he introduces the letter, he says that his mission is by the command of God. He has been told to take this mission, to take this message by God himself. And one of the things he said was Paul is contrasting himself with those who go and teach without the command of God. They don't have authority, but they still choose to teach. And these are the people that we were talking about. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Everybody is a theologian. This is what we said. And everybody likes to talk about their ideas of God. But what we see here is the test of authentic Christianity is not how well you talk, but how well you submit to what's already been said. Friends, the message has already been given. It's not to be changed. There's not more to be given. There's not some new revelation that's coming. The message is sufficient. It is Christ who is salvation. That's what we need. And so the message is not to be changed. The message is to be submitted to. And preached faithfully. So... Let me say this, As we, we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning looking at the false teaching and the details of it, but let me say this. I think for a long time growing up, I thought that false teaching was simply something that was different than ours. We don't want to mess with that because that's different than what we believe. But the problem with false teaching is not that it's different from us. The problem is that it's false. <laughs> this may sound really simplistic, but here's the problem. It doesn't reflect who God truly is. In verse 12, it says that these are deceivers. That's verse 10, excuse me. In 11, it says they upsell, upset whole households. What that means, upsetting whole households, it has a, an ethical association. It means they're leading households astray. It leads them away from the truth. And so the problem with false teaching is not just that it's different. It's exactly that, that it's False. It doesn't reflect who God really is. Now, before we get into the main points, let me make one more side note about this uh, Cretan business that Paul speaks of. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is in verse 12. I wish Paul would tell us how he really thought, right? This prophet that Paul quotes is supposedly a a Cretan teacher from about the 6th century BC. His name was Epimenides. A lot of this is in your notes if you'll open your notes in the bulletin there. Let me explain this a a little bit further. The name itself, Cretan or Crete, holds the root for the verb to lie. (laughs) And so Crete was named after the verb and the noun for lying or falsehood. These people had a reputation. This reputation was spread widely, that they were a people who lied. They were barbaric in some sense and held no ethics. And so as Paul says this, he quotes this prophet and he affirms the general reality that Cretans are associated with lying. Now, of course, Paul isn't saying every person who's lived in Crete is a liar. He's already told Titus to appoint people from within the body to be elders. Surely these aren't some of the people Paul's talking about here. But in a general sense, just like a proverb does, he's saying Cretans have this association. And so, Paul, again, is not speaking specifically to every single Cretan, but saying this is the character that they're known for, the Cretans in general. Just so you know, another example, Cretans were known to say that the Zeus was buried on their island, that the god Zeus, well, first of all, Zeus was supposedly not supposed to die, and then they didn't have Zeus really buried on their island, and so, but they were known to spread things like this. And so this is going to, we're going to get into some application of this here in a little bit. As we get into the marks of a false religion, let me reference Galatians 1.8 in your notes which is in your notes. Paul says in Galatians eight, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. <laughs> Friends, Paul is very clear that nothing was to be added to the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And when he says this in Galatians 1.8, He says, even if an angel from heaven, Paul is speaking in exaggeration to say, the message is complete, it's full. Don't let anyone come and bring some other message to you. This is really interesting to me when I think about Mormonism, because Mormonism is a claim that one had an encounter with an angel, and then that angel gave them the fuller gospel. Friends, there is no fuller gospel We don't need more creative material. God has given us the material we need. If you feel empty, it's not because Christ isn't sufficient. He is. He is sufficient. And I think that if Joseph Smith would have encountered Christ in this way, the sufficiency of Christ, we wouldn't have the problems we do today. Let's look this morning at the marks of false religion. Now this was given a long time ago, as you know, a very long time ago. But I think in a general sense, as we look at what Paul talks about, these marks characterize false religion of every age, of our age, of then, of any time. So let's look at some of these qualities. The first is they're motivated by money to teach what's false. Now, these things are connected. This is verse 11. He says in verse 11, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, So this is monetary gain, but it's shameful because they're teaching what they ought not to teach. These are connected because usually when you teach the truth, you're not going to be just doing it for money. The Christian message, as many of you know, is not necessarily the most popular message to teach. If you don't accept Christ, you will live in hell eternally separated from God forever. That's not an easy message to teach. And so, usually if they're motivated by money, they are going to be teaching things that are false. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Money, if it drives a man, if it drives a teacher, it will lead them to falsehood. It's interesting that Joseph Smith was a treasure hunter around the same time he claims to have the interactions with these angels. He was known to go and to hunt treasures and to be digging for treasures all the time. I'm not saying this is the reason it's false, but these are things that we should look at. Also, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, this is interesting. If I can get a picture to come up, I think I have a picture ready. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Their one of their their second leader. his name was Joseph Rutherford. And he made the prediction that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to be resurrected, were going to be resurrected, and they were the beginning uh, of the resurrection, really, but he wanted them to have a place to live, and so he built a house for them. This house is called Beth Salim, House of Princes. Now what's interesting about this is that when, this was in 1930, around 1930, when they weren't resurrected. Joseph Rutherford got to live in this house until they came and obviously Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have not come yet and so Rutherford actually died in this house there's a picture of Rutherford in front of the house you can find it online and everything on there is true but it it does look real seriously and he he's in front of the house parked in his Cadillac in front of this house so it's interesting that these things that they speak about, they're also associated with extravagant living. And again, I'm not saying that this is the way to say that they're false, but these are things to take into consideration when we look at uh, these teachings that are beyond what we have in the Bible. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard, Hubbard, another theologian who started t- Scientology, said, if you want to make real money, start a religion. Start a religion. He is the founder of Scientology. So these are things that we need to look to when we hear teachings that are odd, that are different, that don't seem consistent. And so Mark's of false religion. They're motivated by money to teach what's false. Secondly, they're characterized by myths. Look at verse 14. It says that these people, t- they, in verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, Those who are teaching these false things are teaching myths. Now these myths, what they are is a special sense of knowledge. There were these teachers who would claim to have access to interpretations that were different than everyone else had access to. They would have ecstatic experiences, maybe like we're talking about with Joseph Smith, access to these angels, revelations from them. And they are able to teach people in ways that other people cannot. For instance... Some Jews, they would take the Hebrew letters. The Hebrew letters have numerical value. So they would take the Hebrew letters for the name Abraham. And the name Abraham, there were no vowels, and so it would just be R-B-M, Rabim. And then they would apply the numerical value, they would add them up and they got 318. And so these interpreters would look at the Bible, they would look at the word Abraham, and every time Abraham occurred, they assumed that that meant 318 servants of God. 318 servants of God. And so they would take on all these allegorical interpretations. The problem with many of these is they are speculations. Now, do we do this? Every time you look to find the Pope in the book of Revelation, You're making speculations. Every time you try to identify the Antichrist in our world, one, you're trying to make these speculations. And what Paul is trying to say is that these speculations are useless. They're pointless. They aren't helpful for the body, for building the body up. And so, when we see these myths, when we see constant speculation, we should be concerned. And we should not give ourselves over to these things. Listen to 2 Peter 1.16. In this verse, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly concocted fables. Now that word fables is the same word for myths that we're reading here. And he says, We did not follow fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. You see, the gospel isn't about speculations. Jesus Christ is not about speculation. It's not about clever and cuteness. It's about truth. It's about reality. What the gospel writers want to say is that Jesus came to us. We saw him. We felt him. We, we witnessed him with our own eyes. It is reality. And it's not, it's not something that one person can get up and say he has access to and others don't. And this is what many cults try to do. Friends, through Christ, you have access. All of us have access. If I say something and you don't think it's true, you look at the word and you correct me. The gospel is not about speculation, it's not about myth. Next characteristic of false religion is commands of men. Commands of men. This is in verse 14. They are not to devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. As Paul writes this, he's taking directly from Jesus. Listen to the words of Mark at 7, 7-8. through eight. This is Jesus speaking. He says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men the Pharisees were placing these rules on the people that they also had to follow. They would take God's word and then they would add things on to it and say, you also need to follow this so that you can be extremely close to God. And what Paul's saying is that you're not to add anything to the gospel. We need to be very, very careful of this because even general wisdom can be turned into a command. If you place any obligation on someone else, that's not found in here, friend. That's a command of men. And it's departing from the true gospel. It's going further than the true gospel. And so while you may have some general wisdom that you think she, people should follow, you can't place that as obligatory on other people. That's a command of men. A couple stories. Part of this is to encourage you as far as our, our Colt's study that we'll be doing but I wanted to share with you an example a modern example of how this happens Jehovah's Witnesses as many of you know do not allow blood transfusion they make it obligatory on all families they cannot if they're involved in their church they cannot have a blood transfusion a couple weeks ago in the class I took, I was able to hear a uh, story of a family who had a newborn daughter and she was losing blood very, very quickly. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. And so the doctor came to them and said, your daughter's going to have to have a blood transfusion or she's going to die. And he said, you have to decide. I know that you're Jehovah's Witness. And they said, they said no initially. Well, then the doctors came back, and they were going to be charged for allowing this to happen, allowing their daughter to die in this way, and so they were going to, the, to force it to happen. The, daughter, the doctors were going to proceed with it regardless. Well, the elders of the Jehovah's Witness church came in, and they began to say to this father and mother, look, you can't let this happen. We can get her out of here. We can sneak her out. And so they began to try to talk to them into letting them sneak the daughter out without letting this blood transfusion happen. The dad said to one of the elders of the church, I I can't let my daughter die. I just, I can't let my daughter die. And the elder in response said, I hope that your daughter gets hepatitis from the blood transfusion. This may sound very extreme, but friends, when you place a law that's above the law of God or that's further than the gospel on someone else... When you don't allow fellowship because they don't do something the way that you do it. It's the same thing. We cannot go further than what God has told us. Than the gospel that's been revealed to us. They also don't allow organ transplants. You're not allowed to read anti-witness literature. We can do similar things. You can't read that. You can't read that. Even general wisdom. If it's turned into a command, it's beyond the gospel. We can't have the legalism. We can't have the commands of men. Yes, we should walk with Christ, and we should walk with in righteousness, but we need to be very careful here about the fine line here. Next, a false understanding of purity. Verse 15. Marks that false religions are characterized by this false understanding of purity. Look at verse 15 with me. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Again, Paul's taking directly from the teaching of Jesus in the gospel. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through uh, through 41. Follow uh, If you have your notes, this is there for you to follow along. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash his hands before dinner. This was a ritual ceremony. They washed their hands before dinner, and it made them ritually clean. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within And behold, everything is clean for you. These religious people were thinking that the rituals made them pure on the inside. The outer behavior would make them inwardly clean. But what Jesus teaches is that inward cleanness that only comes through God, that only comes through worship of Him, repentance in Him, inward cleanness is what truly makes one clean. This is what Jesus is teaching. Now, what the false teachers in Titus are doing is similar to what the Pharisees did. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. In other words, to the one who is pure in heart, to the one who has been saved by Christ Jesus, they know that foods, no food is unclean for them. No longer do we not, we can't eat pork. We can eat that now in the gospel. All foods are clean. So, What's the, the practical application here? Let's read 1 Timothy 4 3 and look at this a little further. This is another place where they, they were doing this. 1 Timothy 4 3. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So, friends, do you constantly feel guilty about things that you do or if you acknowledge the freedom the purity that has come in the gospel that comes through the heart not through your outward rituals nothing you do here physically can make you clean, coming here doesn't make you clean it's only the forgiveness of Christ Jesus it's only the work of the heart that can make you clean this will be covered a little bit more in the next point let's look at the last mark of false religion, separation of doctrine and duty. Verses 15 through 16. Since we just read verse 15, we'll just read 16 here. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, These people think they're clean because of what they've done on the outside. So what they've done is they've separated the doctrine and the duty. They think they're clean on the outside, so they don't have to act in any certain way. They can act however they want to because outwardly they're clean. But what Paul's saying is their works are denying that they even know God. In some cases, they're living free of any sense of morality. But in others, they're plagued with guilt. This is what happens. This is what happens when you separate the doctrine from the duty. You get this religious, obsessive, compulsive disorder where you never feel fully forgiven and never feel that you can do enough. This is a faulty understanding of God's grace. You see, the Pharisees were always doing these religious duties, trying to keep up with where they were supposed to be with God, following the law. And you can fall into the same routine. Do you constantly feel guilt? Are you plagued with it not doing enough? You feel like you have to do more and more to really be intimate with God. Or are you one who thinks that you can just come to church and you really don't have to do anything beyond that, that that means you have a relationship with God, that you'll be with him forever? Both of these are a bad understanding of God's grace. In God's grace, first of all, you don't have to work to be with him. You're forgiven. But in God's grace also, you're expected to walk with him. So in both senses, I hope that you're not walking in guilt because God has given you forgiveness. I hope that you don't feel like that you have to be good enough for people or for him because God loves you for who you are. You can't be good enough for him. And then, if you're one who's just walking in loose morality, Because you think, I come to church, I do what I'm supposed to do. Friend, that's not God's grace. He expects you to walk with Him and to trust Him. Three questions. We're finishing up this portion. We're getting close to being done. Three questions need to be asked of every religion. And you can see this in your notes. First, is its origin divine or human, revelation or tradition? Divine or human, revelation or tradition? Ours, for instance... God revealed himself to man. God spoke to man through the Holy Spirit. And this is how they wrote God's word. When we look at things like Mormonism. And we look at things like Jehovah's Witnesses. It's one man or a couple of men who lorded over the rest. And who claimed to have an access that others don't have. Friends, that's a sign of cult. That's a sign of false religion. In Christ we all have access. Is it origin, divine or human, revelation or tradition? Secondly, is its essence inward or outward? Spiritual or ritual? In other words, is it done in the heart through worship or is it done by outward actions? The Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance. it It was these rules. No blood transfusions, no organ transplants. You have to go out and you have to knock on at least this many doors or you might not make it to heaven. Thirdly, Is its result a transformed life or merely a formal creed? True religion is divine in its origin, spiritual in its essence, and moral in its effect. True religion will result in transformation. So the question you need to ask to know where you are, have you been transformed? That's That's what happens in Christ. Your heart is transformed. Now, next point of the passage. How do we silence false doctrine? How do we silence it? Paul is very blunt here, and this is somewhat difficult. First, verse 11, they must be silenced. It sounds like you're just supposed to go beat these guys up, knock, put them out of their misery, and just get rid of them. What do, how do we silence these people? Then verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. How do we do this? How do we really silence them? Well, first of all, let's look at the rebuke word in verse 13. This rebuke word is the same word used in 2 Timothy 3.16. And here's what it says there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Again, that rebuke word that Paul uses in Titus is the same word for reproof in 2 Timothy 3.16. What Paul seems to be saying is, these are people who supposedly want to draw their faith directly from the scriptures. And so what you're to do with them as they're making all these allegorical interpretations of Scripture and twisting everything, take them back to the Word. Make them argue their case specifically from the Word. This is the role of overseers. Again, this passage is connected to the one prior, qualifications for overseers. Last week, I used the illustration or I mentioned that there are many people today who try to use the scriptures to justify homosexuality. So if someone comes to me with that, what I'd want to do immediately is open the Bible and say, take me there. Don't use some other argument. Don't use anything else. Show me here. Paul is saying, rebuke them. Take them to the word. Clearly argue the case. Show them truth. Show them truth. This is how we rebuke. We take them to the scriptures. 2 Timothy 4.2. How do we do this? Here it says rebuke them sharply. It says silence them. How are we to do this? Are we to be angry? Are we to yell at them? That's what it almost sounds like. 2 Timothy 4, two. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and instruction. And so here we see that Paul's telling him, do it with patience. Do it lovingly, in a sense, is what he's saying. Walk with people through this, through this struggle with truth that they're having, and do it with patience. So why does Paul tell them to do it so harshly in Titus? And this goes back to what we said earlier about the Cretans. They're liars, they're evil beasts, they're gluttons. What Paul's saying is some people will have to be dealt with differently. Let me read a quote for, for you from John Chrysostom. He was a, a, a preacher around the 5th century. And he's commenting on this passage and he says, As he who treats with harshness the meek and ingenious may destroy them. He's saying the, those who are meek, if you treat them with harshness, you'll just break their spirits. So he who flatters one that requires severity causes him to perish and does not suffer him to be reclaimed. So, what Chrysostom is saying is those who are meek and those who are soft, if you yell at them, you're just going to crush their spirits. You're not going to get anywhere with them. But those who are stubborn, those who are liars, you might need to be much more severe. You might need to be much more clear. So, the Cretans, because of their character, which Paul clarifies, we need to be very clear, very straightforward with them. Now, why do we do this? Why do we do this? The goal is redemptive. This is what Paul says. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, I really want to challenge you here, and we'll talk about this if you come to our equipping class. A lot of times, as soon as you get that knock on the door from from the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness, you've got a little piece of knowledge that you have, and you just want to yell and say, "You're, you're so ridiculous. How do you believe this? That doesn't sound like a redemptive goal. And so, as you walk with people in the truth, the goal is redemptive. Just like the Jehovah's Witness reacted harshly, friends, you're not called to act that way in Christ. The goal is redemptive, to restore them to the truth. And it's only in acting in the Spirit of Christ that you can do that in love, in gentleness. The next way to silence false truth, falsehood, and the last thing we'll look at is to live a transformed life. So first, we're going to take them back to the word. But secondly, we're going to live a transformed life. Look at 1 Peter 2.15. This is in your notes again. 1 Peter 2.15. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Same phrase. Paul says, put them to silence. Peter says, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I've wondered if this is what Jesus is referring to when he says not to cast your pearls before swine. There are some people that they're going to keep yapping. It doesn't matter what you say. And so that it's by your life, it's by your integrity, it's by your faithfulness, your quiet godliness that you'll testify to the reality of Christ. In this sense, you need to be wise. Who are those people that it would be no good to try to discuss with, but you do have the opportunity to live before them in a godly, Christ-like manner? Sometimes it's your life that will silence them. And let me make this statement, and I want this to be a lasting reminder for you. I want you to hear this. Your life, every one of you, your life, my life, is either the best apologetic or the best critique for the reality of the Christian faith. Your life is either the best apologetic, the best defense, or it's the best critique for the reality of the Christian faith. If you claim Christ and your life isn't transformed, why would I want it? Why do I want it? So, please, I'm not asking you to be perfect. But friend, if you choose to walk in immorality, please don't claim Christ for the sake of the rest of us. Because we are trying and we want people to know him. So if you claim him, your life ought to be radical. It ought to be changed. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 16. They profess to know God. They claim to have knowledge, but they deny him by their works. Their works say they don't know him. And because of that, because of their life, they're detestable, they're disobedient, and they're, uh, excuse me, unfit for any good work. Friend, are you fit for any good work? Are you qualified? It's your life that determines that. It's the impact of Christ in your life. So, as we close, I want to ask you, do you know the freedom of Jesus? As we talked about, one of the marks of this false religion is guilt in your life. is a constant sense of not feeling like you can be good enough. Do you know the freedom of Christ? If you have let one ounce of works creep in where you think... God's forgiven me, but I've still got to get there. I've still got to be good enough. If you let one ounce creep in, then you discredit his grace and you say it's not enough. Friend, his grace is all sufficient. It is all you need. And this is why the message never has to be changed. This is why we never have to add anything because it is sufficient. It's radical. It's full forgiveness of whatever you've done. And it's full restoration to God himself. Full access. Full presence every day through the Holy Spirit. Every minute. Every second of every day. Do you know freedom? Do you know Christ? Do you know Him? We're going to pray together. For believers, if you do know Christ. You, know, you do know. Then what I challenge you is that. last One of those last statements. Your life is either. The best defense, the best apologetic, or the best critique. Live righteously. And when you have opportunity with those who don't believe, don't just be harsh with them. Be loving. Be Christ. But speak truth. Speak truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are truth. God, that what you've done in Christ Jesus is not some myth. It's not some allegorical story, but it is real. It's not just real because we feel it. It's real because it has been seen. Lord, you did. You broke into our world in Christ Jesus, and you break into our lives with salvation. And you forgive us, Lord, and you make us clean, and you make us yours. And thank you, Father, that you make us free forever for life. And so in this we have peace. In this we have joy, regardless of the circumstance, because you're good, you're faithful. Lord, we pray that your people, that people would know the truth. God, that we, as crosspoint, as body of believers and as believers all over the world, would make clear your truth, that we would be patient in talking through your word, God. But Lord, that we would be bold. And sharing it. Lord that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. and God that we may bring glory to you. Father I pray for those who may not know you. That you would make that so clear to them. And I pray that they would surrender their lives to you. God I pray that all our lives would continually be transformed by your great love. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.